Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Diagnosis and Treatment of Parkinson's Disease. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on June 28, 2017. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated and coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Dr. Greg Pontone, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, discusses neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease. Uh, I'm going to start talking about maybe the other side of Parkinson's disease, the, the non-motor symptoms, and specifically the neuropsychiatric symptoms. So when Dr. Parkinson first described the disease in 1817 in his essay on the shaking palsy, he believed that the senses and intellects were uninjured. And even when things as severe as dementia were recognized in people who were suffering from Parkinson's disease, it was felt to be an accessory symptom. So this was an elderly cohort for the most part. And that's when senile dementia occurred. So it was thought to be just a secondary uh, process, sort of like uh, Hickman's uh, dictum. Uh, he could have more than one disease. But it really wasn't until the end of the 19th century that people began to recognize that personality changes and other cognitive uh, and emotional changes were part and parcel of the disease and that Parkinson's itself was a sufficient cause for these changes. And you didn't need a second explanation. So Dr. Rosenthal mentioned the cardinal motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and she commented that maybe as many as 25% of patients don't have a rest tremor, uh, and yet it's one of the cardinal symptoms. Well, some of these non-motor symptoms are even more common than the cardinal motor symptoms. So you can see that loss of sense of smell occurs in up to 90% of people with Parkinson's disease, so a higher prevalence than even the tremor. A dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system is also quite common and often starts before the motor symptoms uh, and includes things like constipation, which is nonspecific but very prevalent in Parkinson's, erectile dysfunction, and then orthostatic hypotension, where people feel faint when going from sitting to standing because they don't have the appropriate autonomic nervous system response to maintain blood pressure for that change of position. And then the things that I'm going to focus on today, which are the mood and anxiety changes uh, and behavior changes that occur in at least half of people with Parkinson's at some point of the disease. And these non-motor symptoms are really uh, even responsible for changing the way we think of the disease. So traditionally, we think of disease onset at the time of diagnosis uh, by motor symptom recognition. But it's probable that in most cases, the disease is actually active for a decade or more before the motor symptoms begin, maybe in lower brainstem regions, uh, causing things like REM sleep behavior disturbance, and even anxiety and depressive disorders have been shown to occur 
a decade or more before the onset of the motor symptoms. And then surprisingly, cognitive changes, uh, so a, a mild cognitive impairment that might not in interfere with function has been recognized in up to 40% of people at the time of diagnosis with Parkinson's disease. And at least half of people will go on to a full dementia syndrome within 10 years of motor symptom onset. And if you continue to follow people until death, if they live long enough with Parkinson's, many people will go on to develop a dementia syndrome, uh, maybe 80% or more. So I'll start with depressive disorders because they're some of the best recognized and most common of the psychiatric disorders that occur in Parkinson's. Uh, at least 40% of patients have a clinically significant depressive disturbance. And there are several types of depressive disturbances, everything from a, a minor depressive disturbance all the way up to what we call major depression, which by definition interferes with daily functioning. Uh, depression is a little bit misleading and often missed because you don't have to be sad. You don't necessarily have to endorse uh, a sadness or a low mood. But what must be there is a decrease in interest and engagement in your usual activities. Usually people will report not enjoying things they were usually uh, passionate about. Uh, some of the other uh, difficulties in recognizing depression and Parkinson's is the overlap in the loss of energy and motivation, which can be either due to Parkinson's or depressive disturbance. Uh, same thing with the sleep changes. Insomnia is a symptom both of depression and sleep disturbance, as I mentioned, is very common in Parkinson's. But it turns out that if you treat this as a syndrome, uh, treat depression as a syndrome, we still do a good job recognizing it. So, for instance, the commonly used depression scales, like the geriatric depression scale, which is the one we recommend for use in Parkinson's because of the age uh, range for most of these patients, is is equally good in uh, detecting depression in Parkinson's as it is in the uh, aged uh, population. Uh, things like the Hamilton depression inventory also work. So this construct of depression still holds up even though it might uh, be influenced by uh, Parkinson's disease. What's less clear is how often depressive episodes recur in Parkinson's. It's not clear if they recur more frequently or less frequently than in the general population. And it's also not clear if they respond as well to the current treatments. Uh, one thing that is clear is that depression and Parkinson's disease is commonly comorbid with anxiety disorders, even more so than in the general population. So the clinical message is that uh, if you recognize depression in someone, also look for anxiety. So from a large clinical trial uh, of neuroprotective treatments in Parkinson's, there is some data about what the course of depression looks like in Parkinson's disease. Uh, almost half of people suffering from a depressive episode in Parkinson's will remit uh, within six months, and that's with or without treatment. That's regardless of treatment. But one thing that uh, is important is that even mild depressive symptoms predict a greater risk for developing more severe symptoms. So the uh, the message there is that if you recognize mild depressive symptoms, treat them because they put people at risk of a more severe depressive disturbance. And the risk factors, in addition to the severity of the depressive symptoms, are older age and a longer duration of Parkinson's. Uh, they predict more treatment resistance for these depressive episodes in this NetPD study. And so, again, it looks like Parkinson's disease, the pathology of Parkinson's, is 
contributing to the burden uh, that people experience from depression. And exactly what the mechanism is, we're not sure, but certainly these things overlap. And I'm going to show you even more evidence in the next few slides of how Parkinson's and depression overlap in a fundamental way. So the currently the largest ongoing study of people with Parkinson's shows that depression has the biggest impact on quality of life. In fact, it impacts quality of life uh, at least twice as much as the motor impairments that define the disease. So again, uh, treating depression is an important clinical target because it can change people's overall quality of life. And then I want to link depression and Parkinson's disease, the motor syndrome, uh, even more directly. This is uh, research from our longitudinal study of Parkinson's here at Hopkins. And basically, I'm going to show you a graph on the next slide that uh, looks at activities of daily living, physical activities such as walking, hygiene, feeding yourself, dressing, and talking, and how depression affects those physical symptoms over time. So I want to orient you to this slide. On the y-axis, that vertical line, that's the score on the Northwestern Disability Scale, with 40 being the highest level of functioning in those daily activities, such as walking, feeding, and eating. And then the lower score is representing more disability. The x-axis, or the horizontal line from 0 to 6, is number of years in our longitudinal study. Now there's three lines. The red and green overlap a bit. The blue line is people who are suffering from depression. And you can clearly see that people suffering from depression function, physically function, at a lower level at any time point than people who are not depressed. And what's clinically encouraging is that the people with the green line are people who are never depressed and they're consistently functioning at a higher physical level. The people at the red line are people who either spontaneously experienced remission of their depressive episode or were treated by their doctors and their depression improved. And you can see not only is their depression better, which as I mentioned has a direct effect on quality of life, their physical functioning improved simply uh, by virtue of improving their depression. So clearly these two symptoms are, are closely related. Next slide. So now transitioning to anxiety. Anxiety is at least as common as depression and Parkinson's. And uh, half, uh, half of patients will experience some type of clinically significant anxiety at some point uh, of the disease. Uh, and exactly uh, how severe that anxiety is going to be will vary from person to person, uh, but a third or more will have uh, diagnostic and statistical manual caliber disorders of anxiety that require treatment. Certain types of anxiety are probably associated with the pathological process of Parkinson's and or the dopaminergic treatment. And I'll talk a bit more about that in the next few slides, but the most common way we see it related to Parkinson's is in the on-off fluctuations we see in motor function, where people take the medication, their, their motor symptoms improve, and as it wears off, they get worse. Uh, and anxiety tends to come as the symptom, the physical motor symptoms return at the end of dose. Uh, it turns out that the generalized anxiety or non-episodic anxiety disorders are more common than episodic in Parkinson's. Anxiety at the level of the disorder is a worry that's out of character compared to earlier times in their life. 
Uh, it's excessive worry that interferes with their ability to concentrate or function on a daily basis. Sometimes there can be physical symptoms of restlessness or even muscular tension. Some people have uh, butterflies in their stomach or other stomach complaints, hot and cold flashes. And in some cases, it can be really severe episodes of panic-like anxiety that comes on sometimes out of the blue, sometimes triggered. And in the case of the fluctuation uh, associated uh, anxiety, it comes on near the end of dose. And once you can establish that pattern, that might influence your treatment decision. So uh, traditionally, we use antidepressants and serotonergic treatments for anxiety disorders. But if you recognize a pattern of anxiety in relationship to the end of Parkinson's medication dosing, it, that might require a dopaminergic intervention. And so it's important to work closely with their neurologist so that you can treat uh, the specific type of anxiety that you see. Another very common type of anxiety in Parkinson's is what we call anticipatory anxiety. So uh, worrying excessively about an upcoming appointment or trip, and we think that might be related in some cases to the executive dysfunction we see in Parkinson's because you have more trouble organizing, sequencing, and planning. So it's harder to allay your fears by running through the scenario before it happens and anticipating problems. So similar to depression, the impact of anxiety is, is greater than that of the motor symptoms. So again, an important clinical target. A uh, higher level of caregiver distress is noticed. Uh, in patients who have anxiety, it's harder to take care of an anxious, depressed patient, uh, even if the motor impairments are similar. Uh, Usually, anxiety, uh, and again, it's, this is a chicken and egg question, is associated with on-off fluctuations, and it's hard to say whether the anxiety might make on-off fluctuations more frequent, or if you have them, it makes the anxiety more common. Same thing with freezing of gait. Sometimes people get anxious, and then they freeze, triggered by the anxiety, and sometimes they become anxious because they freeze. But there certainly appears to be a two-way association between anxiety and these uh, motor complications. In terms of how we treat anxiety disorders, there's really a, a, a very limited literature on how best to treat them with medications. In fact, at the time I got my current grant, we were the first ones to, to really systematically look at a pharmacologic treatment for anxiety and Parkinson's. Now, there is a pretty good evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is helpful for anxiety and depression in Parkinson's disease. And for the most part, in current uh, clinical practice, what we use is what we use in the general population to treat anxiety, which includes cognitive behavioral therapy, antidepressants, and in some patients, benzodiazepines. But it's important to recognize that benzodiazepines, things like clonazepam, Valium, Ativan, have additional risks in Parkinson's, such as increasing the risk of falls and cognitive impairment. Uh, another important uh, difference in treating anxiety in Parkinson's is that you want to make sure that their motor function is optimized because, as I mentioned, certain types of anxiety are going to be linked to on-off fluctuations and other problems with their motor symptoms. Now, depression treatment is a, a little more advanced in Parkinson's. There's been some pretty good co uh, controlled uh, trials of medication, and as I mentioned, there's good evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy uh, helps. Uh, and as Liana mentioned earlier, is that exercise seems to be a very important intervention, not only uh, potentially as a disease-modifying intervention, but it helps 
both motor and non-motor symptoms. So staying active and exercising helps mood and anxiety as well. There is a, a, a there's actually a couple of systematic reviews and meta-analyses looking at both drug and non-drug treatments for depression and Parkinson's disease. And I just want to give you the consensus of the current uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And it appears that for both efficacy and safety, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things like your Zoloft and your Paxil and Prozac, have the best evidence uh, for treating depression and Parkinson's disease. And for the most part, it appears that they do so at the same doses used uh, in the general population. Uh, of course, cognitive behavioral therapy alone and in conjunction with the SSRIs are, are uh, also effective. There's also some evidence that uh, RTMS, the repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, is effective for depression and Parkinson's disease and may even provide a little bit of secondary benefit for the motor symptoms. So that might be a, another depression treatment to consider. Now I want to talk about uh, Parkinson's disease psychosis. And currently, the, the probably best criteria to use in recognizing psychosis in Parkinson's is the uh, NINDS criteria, the uh, National Institute of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke. And basically, that requires that at least one of the following symptoms is present, illusion false sense of presence, you know, feeling that someone is in the room when no one's actually present, hallucination, and delusions. And I'll define all of these in the next slide. And that the symptoms of psychosis were related to Parkinson's in that they occurred after the onset of Parkinson's. So if they were pre-existing, they're probably due to another phenomenon. Uh, they have to be recurrent or continuous for at least a month, or they could be due to a, a drug or a temporary state like delirium or uh, some other toxic metabolic problem. Uh, so basically, you want to make sure that you exclude alternate causes uh, of Parkinson's. So let's define the terms. You know, psychosis can mean a lot of things, but basically, it consists of perceptual disturbances, illusions and hallucinations, and thought disturbances or delusions. And so the key difference between illusions and hallucination is that illusions require that there's an external stimulus in the environment that's being misperceived, whereas hallucinations can occur in the absence of an external stimulus. So, for instance, if you see a man in the corner of your room and you turn on the light and it's just a coat rack, that's an illusion. If you see a little girl sitting on the edge of your bed and you flip on the light and nothing is there, that's a hallucination because there was nothing to be misperceived. Delusions are disorders of thought, and they're uh, false, fixed, idiosyncratic beliefs. They can be bizarre, but they can also be about mundane topics. And so oftentimes, uh, it can take a little while to recognize a delusional belief because it might be plausible. The other problem with delusions is that they can't be reasoned with. And so I can tell you that I've worked with many caregivers and families that are very frustrated by delusions because they can't provide insight to their loved one and they can't talk them out of these beliefs no matter how problematic they might be. And so while we don't, don't necessarily say that it's inappropriate to try to provide insight, it might not be effective, and certainly it's not going to be fruitful to argue with people about delusions. They're going to require, in most cases, medication treatment. And then one of the most important clinical distinctions, whether it's perceptual disturbances like illusions or hallucinations or delusions, is whether or not the, the patient has insight or not, meaning that do they recognize that these experiences are 
unreal? Or do they have some idea that these are not real? And I want to give you two examples that illustrate this important point, because both can result in adverse outcomes, uh, depending on uh, the level of insight. So take a patient who sees uh, a bunch of people entering his home at night, and they look as if they're aggressive, and so he gets his firearm, starts loading them, and gets ready to defend his house. Now, he has no idea, he has no insight that these people aren't real. Everybody would agree that's clearly a dangerous situation. But let me give you an example of a, a non-distressing hallucination that might be nearly equally as dangerous. So here's a patient who every day that his brother goes to work, he's home alone, and he sees a parade of three-foot wooden puppets. And he actually enjoys these because they're entertaining and he's bored. The problem comes one day when he needs a snack during the parade. And he tries to cross the hall to the kitchen to make a sandwich, but has to step over the parade and falls and breaks his hip. And this resulted in a, a pretty bad adverse outcome. As you know, the more mortality uh, is pretty high with hip fractures and Parkinson's. So again, here's, a, here's a, an illustration of the lack of insight, even in non-distressing hallucinations, still making them dangerous. So when you're deciding on how aggressively to treat psychosis, this distinction of with, with and without insight is important. Another important uh, type of phenomenon that's maybe not fully psychotic is what's called vivid dreaming and the hypnopompic and hypnagogic hallucinations that occur when waking from sleep or going to sleep. Uh, again, a vivid dreaming, sometimes people will have a dream that's so real that on waking, they think it actually happened and might act on it. Sometimes this is responsible for people wandering and, and uh, having adverse outcomes due to exposure. So if this comes to light, you definitely want to let your physicians know, even though it might not be fully in the spectrum of psychosis. Again, just like anxiety and depression and most of the psychiatric problems, psychosis worsens quality of life. It's actually one of the major reasons for lowering or even discontinuing dopaminergic drugs that help with motor symptoms, which is a, an unfavorable trade-off in many cases. So you're actually worsening their movements in order to control their psychosis. It's one of the leading causes of hospitalization and institutionalization in these patients, more so than their motor disability. People usually don't wind up in nursing homes simply because of their motor impairment, whereas they may because of the psychosis. It's also an increased risk for mortality. So in managing uh, Parkinson's disease psychosis, you want to treat any underlying medical illnesses. Uh, sometimes you'll get lucky. You'll recognize an infection or something else that's uh, triggering the psychosis. Uh, urinary tract infections are common. Pulmonary, you know, respiratory infections are common. Another common cause is uh, medication. So anticholinergic medications uh, that are used for the control of bladder symptoms are common. Pain medications, especially opiate pain medications, can be a problem. Uh, the reason that anticholinergic medications are especially important is because you can get these over-the-counter. So caregivers sometimes will use over-the-counter sleep aids that are anticholinergic. These can trigger psychotic episodes. So make sure to do a careful history to see if any of these medications have been introduced. If Parkinson's medications, specifically dopaminergic Parkinson's medications, have been added or increased recently, that's going to be an important thing to recognize and may need to be adjusted. And then uh, using antipsychotics is going to be important as well. 
some evidence shows that cognitive medications like cholinesterase inhibitors, Exelon and Aricept, might indirectly lessen the burden of psychosis. And then there's some non-pharmacologic techniques that I just want to briefly mention before closing. Next slide. Yeah, just briefly, thank you, because we need uh -huh. to move along for questions. Thanks so much. Sure. Uh, quickly, if people are experiencing hallucinations, especially if they're happening uh, more toward the evening or at, at night, you want to add night lights or make the house better lit. Discussing this with the patient so they don't panic if they experience these things is important in providing education. Visual techniques such as looking away from the hallucination can sometimes help. And then, uh, you know, interacting with people seems to decrease the frequency. So isolation is another risk factor for these. And then I'll turn this over to Arita McCoy uh, so she can pick up with uh, patient and family support in Parkinson's.